Good morning, family. So this morning's pre-sermon, as I thought about what might be appropriate to say or what I would hope would be appropriate to say, I think what I have for us this morning by way of a pre-sermon is, is a simple exhortation. It would be this. Don't let, don't take your foot off the gas. Don't take your foot off the gas. Well, what does that even mean? Well, at the risk of being painfully, maybe even uncomfortably redundant, what, what our church family has experienced in this last week and every day since was something we didn't see coming. We couldn't have seen it coming. We shouldn't have seen it coming. But God in his perfect and in this specific season, unfathomable providence, we found ourselves what in the vernacular of other circles might be called not coldly, not uh, merely descriptively, but truly a, a critical incident. Something critical has happened in our lives. Shock, sorrow, pain, grief, mourning, a loss so great, so unexpected, so final, it could have torn us apart as a church family. But it didn't. It hasn't. And I believe, as I'm confident you believe as well, it won't. It won't. Now, there are those out there, some who went out from us. Now, this certainly doesn't apply to all who have gone out from us. But there are those who have went out from us but were never truly of us who want just that. They want us not merely to fall apart, but to be torn apart. Their vicious, ungodly, and demonic appetites want to feast on the blood of the saints, on the flesh of a small but not insignificant portion of Christ's church, all the while hypocritically and blasphemously claiming love for Christ and love for people. They are, in the words of 2 Timothy 3.13, evil people and impostors going on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, even though by the power of the Holy Spirit and the unity in Christ we enjoy, we have endured such attacks for years. The attacks that are coming now and will likely come can indeed be wearisome. However, we have done well, I believe, as a church family, in not letting such ugly outside noise distract us too much this week. Praise God. I believe by his grace and his mercy, we will continue on to not be too distracted by these things. Let them rage. Such people, as the word of God says, they plot in vain. Let our prayers for them, our hope for them, not be imprecatory in nature. It could be tempting to pray that way, but we ought not. But rather, let us pray for their salvation that God would extend his grace, mercy, and love toward them through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I've also observed this week, as I'm sure every other member of this church has observed, that despite emotional, physical, and at times spiritual weariness, a binding together of our family that is quite frankly otherworldly has taken place, is taking place. 
in the words of Paul to the Colossians, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And while our harmonious living with each other may never be perfect this side of heaven, we've always sought to major on loving one another here at Grace Fellowship Church. We truly try to major on that. We truly try to live that out day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. We truly do. And as imperfect as we are, I I think we can humbly assert that our church family is closer than most. And out of necessity, but not only out of necessity, we have drawn closer still this last week to each other again. Praise God. So my exhortation is this, to use and maybe even abuse the driving metaphor, don't let your foot off the gas. Don't take your foot off the gas. Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him, Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. A couple verses later in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Revelation 2.3 I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary Matthew 11.28 Come to me all who labor or all who are weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and simply very timely in God's providence the passage that Pastor Mike emailed to all of us this morning Hebrews 10 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now as the dust begins to settle in the aftermath of our collective tragedy, and that settling of dust is going to vary from person to person. But as that dust begins to settle, There can be a natural tendency to want to take a break even from each other. uh, To get away, to rest alone. Now to be sure, in, in times of sorrow and pain and after times of sorrow and pain, we should find our rest in Christ. We should take time and get alone with Christ and be alone with our Savior. We should seek to be alone with Christ. That's good for us. Our Savior sought to be alone with his Father many times. Our Father knows, our Savior knows, far beyond anything we can know, the pain of searing loss. 
How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away, has wounds which mar the chosen one, brings many sons to glory. Yes, let us find rest in Christ as we seek appropriately intimate, individual, singular fellowship with him in prayer, in worship, in word, in meditation. Let us look to Christ. Let us behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. While all that's true, let us also make sure we do not isolate ourselves to grieve, to mourn, or even to heal. Let us not do those things alone. Even as the dust begins to settle, even as we find ourselves able to take more breaths, deep breaths in and out, even as the normalcy of sleep returns, let us not heal alone in that. Do not take your foot off the gas of serving one another, caring for one another, counseling one another, and receiving and giving hospitality to one another, let us not grow weary of doing good. I believe, I really believe, I, I truly believe, the Lord is taking us higher, to a higher level of holiness, godliness, faith, hope, and love for him, and love for each other, and love for the lost. I believe we are seeing now and will continue to see if we do not take our foot off the gas more maturation individually and corporately as a church, more sanctification as individual believers and as a body of believers. God is using our collective tragedy for good right here, right now. Do you see it? Can you see it? Will you see it? Brothers and sisters, you should see it. If you don't, you should see it. So my beloved brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary in doing good, not so that we can boast in and of ourselves or about our church, but so that we can all the more boast in Jesus Christ. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds 
have paid my ransom. Be encouraged, my beloved. Please, be encouraged. All right, open your Bibles with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Our focus this morning is going to be in verses 13 to 21. 13 to 21. Now, what I'm going to present to you this morning is a sermon I've preached twice in the last month, once at uh, Christ Fellowship Bible Church, our beloved brethren down there in St. Louis, and, and once at Calvary Baptist Church in Owasso, Michigan. And, but in each instance, I, I preached what I would call anyways an edited version of the sermon due to time constraints. I don't feel such constraints here this morning, whether you like it or not. Now, if you happen to listen to this sermon, and no, I'm not taking a poll. Um, if you listen to this sermon from one of those other churches, I, I want to encourage you that uh, there will be quite a bit here this morning that you're going to hear this morning that you didn't hear in one of those previous offerings of the sermon. So I, I humbly ask that you don't check out if you've already listened. Okay, Some of you are smiling. I believe... I believe what we're going to look at at God's Word this morning is extremely timely. And not because I'm bringing it, but because of God's beautiful providence and uh, things I heard this morning in, in the prayers of, of the men of the church, things that we have sung this morning. Uh, I, I do believe God is going to truly work this morning through His Word in spite of anything I might say. So with that, would you please stand with me as we read 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21 together. God's word tells us this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You may be seated. So again, the title of this morning's message is Answering the Call to Holiness. The Word of God in both Testaments calls us to be holy as God is holy. And our, our passage for this morning, which in fact quotes the Old Testament, is a beautiful example of the clarion call to holiness in both Old and New Testaments. And as we study this wonderful passage this morning, we are going to learn that to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people, Christians, and as we know, only Christians, only those born again by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are his people. His people must have prepared minds. They must have obedient hearts. 
They must have holy conduct or godliness, and they must have a prayerful life. Undergirding all of this, of course, is the foundation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the gospel once and daily believed and also lived. Don Curran, an itinerant minister, an evangelist, a missionary that I've known for many years, had the opportunity to serve alongside him in Norway a couple of times and been blessed by him more than once over the last decade. He, He was kind enough to write the foreword for the book I recently wrote, The Practice of Holiness. And in the foreword, Don wrote the following. Quote, Ours is a generation of indiscipline. There is a deficiency of regimen in the pursuit of true godliness. Modern believers want spirituality without spiritual formation. But there is no shortcut to holiness. Sadly, what is most grievous is a contentment to live without it. There is a great need for the contemporary church to take heaven by storm, a need that does not despise prophesying and endures hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ can ill afford to leisurely meander any longer, for the day of reckoning is at hand. The call to holiness is conveyed in the scripture in terms of aggression. Some terms, to only mention a few, are resist steadfast in the faith, endure temptation, fight the good fight of the faith, guard your heart with all diligence, run so you may attain, strive for the mastery, pursue holiness, and the violent take it by force. Answering God's call to holiness is an utterly futile proposition for the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, a pursuit of holiness is just an unjustified, unsanctified, never-to-be-glorified, and devoid of the Holy Spirit effort to bribe the judge of the universe. Any effort by the lost person to answer the call to holiness results only in sin, sin of both self-righteousness and works-righteousness. Any effort by the unbeliever to pursue holiness apart from faith in Jesus Christ is to blaspheme God by trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ and regard to regard his sacrifice as, as worthless. On the other hand, to answer the call to holiness is the true believer's life's work. It's his aim, his goal, his desire. It is his hope. It, it is not for the Christian an attempt to earn God's love or to keep God's love, and it's certainly not tried to be accomplished out of some fear of losing God's love. Rather, it's an effort founded upon genuine thankfulness to and a desired reciprocating love for God, for the love God has shown him through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. The Christian wants to be like Jesus. That's what the Christian truly wants. He wants to be more like Jesus every day. It pains him when he falls short of God's glory. He wrestles with his own flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that victory is most certainly possible because Jesus died not only to free him from the penalty of sin, but also to free him from the power, the hold, that sin may have on his life. Yes, the Christian desperately wants to be holy as God is holy. His mission isn't to be perceived as holier than his brother. That's not his desire. He's not trying to keep up 
with some Christian Joneses. His mission is to answer the call to holiness to glorify his Father in heaven. That's why he wants to be holy. So I want to take a few minutes to set the stage for our study by considering the immediate context of our passage by briefly looking at the uh, first 12 verses here in 1 Peter chapter 1. After Peter's doxological salutation to the elect, Christians dispersed throughout the known world as a result of intense persecution, a persecution that continued in the Gentile areas where they landed, he launches into one of the most beautiful treatises on the assurance of the believer. And we find that in verses 3 through 9. Follow along with me. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that pre- perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love this passage of scripture. I've loved it for many, many years. Many years ago, I read it at the bedside of an unbelieving, uh, dying elderly lady. Friends of ours, her children, knowing she was near death, asked me to come to her home and communicate the gospel to her. We had never met before. I had never seen her before. I held her hand as I read 1 Peter 1, 3-9 after I had talked to her for some time. And I watched her countenance change. I was blessed with the joy of one of those rare glimpses at the immediate and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit as God caused her to be born again to a living hope. And if that were not enough, and that would certainly be enough, what everyone thought was surely to be the day of her death was not. Not only did she not die that day, but she would rebound to the point of getting out of her bed and living for another month or two enjoying the gift of salvation she had received like a newborn babe in the faith. It was beautiful to get to watch that. And if you struggle with assurance ever, turn to this passage. Go here, park here, rest here, believe here, brothers and sisters. Your salvation, beloved, is literally guarded in heaven by God with impenetrable, unbreachable, undefeatable, military-like force. Nothing, absolutely nothing, including yourself, can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The more precious than gold imperishable faith you have, which itself is a gift from God, a faith tested by many God-ordained distressing and good trials, enables you to love and believe in the Jesus you've yet to see face to face. It is this faith in Christ that both allows and enables you right now even in the midst of this hardship that we face to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory 
Paul ends this passage with these words, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's where uh, Peter wanted his readers to focus their attention. He is exhorting them to stop dwelling on their circumstances, stop staring into the mirror, rather fix their eyes on Christ, gaze upon Christ, look to Christ for hope, joy, and the assurance of their salvation. Peter then moves on to further stress the objective reality of the believer's salvation in verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, uh, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is again stressing to his readers that they need to have the right perspective regarding their own salvation. In the words of Pastor John MacArthur, quote, this is an incredible piece of scripture. Peter is saying when everything has gone wrong in your life, when nothing is the way you would prefer it to be, look at the blessedness of your salvation. Get a perspective on your salvation. And then he essentially says, and don't depend on your own perspective. Borrow somebody else's perspective. Namely, borrow this perspective of the prophets and the Holy Spirit and the apostles and even the angels. Peter says, get outside yourself and look at your salvation from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit himself, the New Testament apostles, and the holy angels, because salvation was the theme of the prophet's study. Salvation was the theme of the Spirit's revelation. Salvation was the theme of the apostles' preaching. And salvation was the theme of the angels' interest. And this all brings us to our passage this morning, beginning in verse 13. And again, by way of reminder, according to our passage, in order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people must have prepared minds, obedient hearts, holy conduct, godliness, and a prayerful life. And undergirding all of that, of course, is the foundation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The gospel once and daily not only believed, but also lived. Now, it's important to note that all these before-mentioned behaviors, and we are looking this morning at behaviors, according to Pastor John MacArthur, behaviors we are going to quickly consider this morning are the response to an objective, historical look at our salvation. Answering the call to holiness is a response to the objective, historical, literal, promised, and guaranteed salvation of those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The pursuit of holiness is the inevitable, tangible, pleasurable, biblical response to genuine salvation received by faith in Jesus Christ. Holiness, while a supernatural work of God, holiness and the pursuit of holiness is natural in the life of the genuine follower of Jesus Christ. If you are truly in Christ, you will pursue holiness. You will seek to be holy because God is holy. Period. Hard stop. That's what we will do. That's what we will seek to do. 
verse 13 begins with the word therefore and of course hermeneutics 101 teaches us that whenever you see the word therefore the first question to be asked of the text is what is it therefore right but i think we've already taken the time necessary to determine that as a result of remembering the well-guarded salvation we have received through faith in jesus christ verses 3 through 9 and because of having and maintaining the right perspective regarding that most precious gift of salvation, verses 10 through 12, we ought to live in a certain way. We should live in a certain way. We should answer and keep answering God's call to live holy lives for his glory. So let's begin our look at the four behaviors to which Peter calls us, starting with having a prepared mind. A prepared mind. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word translated here as prepared is most literally translated as gird up or to raise up a tunic, tucking it into the belt to keep it out of the way while working or while fighting. It's also used in the sense of bracing oneself with a view of heavy and active exertion. Peter may have had Jesus' own words in mind, which we find in Luke 12, verses 35 to 36. Say, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. The Christian is set apart by God and for God at regeneration and justification by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, he or she is now a saint, not in the superstitious, idolatrous, cultic, Roman Catholic sense of the word, but rather in a biblical sense, as one set apart by God, to God, and for God. He or she is made holy by God. He or she doesn't make himself or herself holy in that sense. Sanctification also begins at regeneration. However, unlike regeneration and justification, which are one-time acts of God, sanctification is not only immediate upon salvation and completed and perfected when we are glorified in our Lord's presence, but sanctification is also progressive. It is ongoing. The Christian is sanctified at regeneration. He is being sanctified throughout his Christian life, and he will one day be fully sanctified when he is with the Lord in glory. So with all of that said and understood, no one lives a holy life by osmosis. And while you can learn from the example of others, you don't arbitrarily become more holy by simply hanging around holy people, although you are certainly much better off in the company of the godly than the ungodly. The sanctifying and progressive work of personal holiness is just that. It is work. Not a work for salvation, but a work as the result of salvation. And that work begins really with the preparation of the mind. According to theologian Matthew Poole in his commentary on this verse, we should, quote, let our minds be attent, prompt, ready, prepared for our spiritual work, restrained from all those thoughts, cares, affections, and lusts, which may entangle, detain, hinder them, and make them unfit for it, end quote. Our minds are inundated these days with information, some good, some bad, some useful, some 
useless, some true, some false, most of it distracting. Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, or X, or whatever they're calling it these days. Television, print media, almost all of it, just the scroll of the thumb away. We, with so many competing interests, not only for our time, but for our thoughts, we must be very proactive in the renewing of our minds and taking every thought captive and dwelling on things above. The Apostle Paul spoke to all three, the renewing of the mind, taking every thought captive, dwelling on things above. All three of these passages are, I, I know, familiar to most of us, if not all of us. But as we go through these passages, before you nod your head in agreement as you hear them, I want to encourage you to ask yourself if you simply know the verses or are you truly applying these verses daily in your life as a means of answering God's call to holiness? Regarding the renewing of our mind, Paul writes in Romans 12, 1-2, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation from worldly thinking to holy thinking, from worldly living to holy living, from conformity to the world to conformity to Christ's likeness happens when one's mind is renewed. That's where it begins. It is from the Greek word here translated as transformed that we derive other English words such as metamorphosis and for the sake of time, I'm not going to paint too broad a picture of, like, of what likely is already appearing in your mind, in, in your head, when you think of that familiar image of metamorphosis, the caterpillar emerging from the cocoon, the transformative change from, from uh, one thing into another. And, and the Greek word here translated as renewal appears in only one other New Testament verse. We find it in Titus 3.5, which reads, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here we, we see a prime example of the synergistic, the cooperative work of sanctification in the life of the believer. Paul's emphasis in Romans 12.2 is the spiritual work of the Christian in his or her ongoing renewal of the mind, yet here in Titus 3.5, Paul focuses his attention on the Holy Spirit's work of renewal in concert with his regenerative work in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit regenerates a person, causing him or her to be born again, and then the Christian, empowered by the now indwelling Holy Spirit, works toward pro proving that which is good and acceptable and perfect by the renewal of his or her own mind. And how do we renew our minds? Well, one way is rejecting conformity to the world. We should actively and continually reject any and every temptation to be conformed to the world's behaviors and beliefs when those behaviors and beliefs run contrary to the only perfect source of instruction for faith and practice. That, of course, is the Word of God. And, of course, you know what that means. At least you ought to know what it means. You need to know the book. You need to know the book. And to do that, you must spend more time in the Word of God than on social media. You must spend more time in the Word of God than you do watching football, basketball, baseball, hockey, or dare I say, even pickleball. 
you should and must spend more time in the Word of God than you do building up calluses on your thumbs as you spend minute after minute, hour after hour, scrolling through YouTube and Facebook reels, constantly dodging content upon which you know your eyes shouldn't even glance. You should spend more time in the Word of God than on your computer or phone, playing games that are seemingly harmless as well as games you know are revolting to God, games that glorify sins for which Jesus shed his innocent blood to cleanse. Ready for this? You should also spend more time in the Word of God than you do in books about the Word of God. You should spend more time in the Word of God than you do in books about the Word of God. Now, I'm not denigrating solid Bible teachers who are truly a gift to the bride of Christ. I benefit much from the writing of theologians, particularly dead guys. However, none of your favorite writers after the first century A.D. were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their books. No author outside Scripture, whether dead or alive, has ever written anything for your consideration that should be given more consideration than the Word of God. The process of synthesis, comparing what others have said about the Bible verse or passage that you are studying, that is an important step in the exegetical process as you're, as you're trying to draw the truth of God's Word from the pages of Scripture. But are you aware, do you, do you know that that is actually the last step of Bible study? It's not the first step, it's the last. Integrity in the study of God's Word doesn't begin with reading books about the Bible. It ends with it. Too many Christians these days, I I fear with so much information at our fingertips, have grown lazy in their personal study of the Word of God. It's much easier to read a book about the Bible, trust that the author you like, who puts a verse quotation in parentheses, actually knows what the verse is saying and teaching, it's, it's much easier to read a book about the Bible than it is to open our own Bibles with a pen and a pad of paper next to it. And, and this personal study, if we're really serious about it, it begins with the time-consuming and exhilarating work of making observations about the text, whether it's a verse or a, or a passage. What does it say? What what doesn't it say? What what questions come to mind as I as I read this passage of scripture or this verse? And then we move on to studying the context, the immediate, the near, and the far context. We consider the verses or passages authorship and the intended audience. We try to discern what if any real, not imagined or merely traditional, cultural considerations may be at play in understanding the text. Then we might move on to studying through the lens of the original languages, the the Hebrew and the Greek. And there are plenty of good and free tools available for those who have no formal education in the languages. Then we allow the scripture to interpret itself by cross-referencing and allowing more obscure passages to be interpreted through the lens of the simpler passages. And then, then we engage in that synthesis the studying of what other men of the faith have determined by honestly studying the text. You might be thinking, well, Tony, I don't have the time to do all of that. I mean, what? Do you expect me to go to seminary? No, I don't. I do expect, what, rather, what you ought to expect of yourselves is to step away from your TV, your hobbies, your computers, and your phones 
so that you can know God and his word better is a key element of the biblical pursuit of holiness. Suffice to say, read your Bible. Read it more often. Read it better. Another way to prepare your mind for the pursuit of holiness is to be proactive in taking every thought captive. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, Paul wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The Greek word translated in 2 Corinthians 10.5 has warfare in view. In addition to taking captive, the word can be translated as to subdue or to ensnare. Warfare is difficult, it's costly, it's sacrificial, it involves both voluntary and involuntary personal deprivation. Warfare is never described and should never be described as fun. Spiritual warfare is no different. It's hard and sometimes metaphorically bloody. The destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations, punishing all disobedience. Does that sound like a good time to you? Well, Christian, tough. Tough. If you want to answer the call to holiness, then you need to get into the fight. And stay there the rest of your natural days for the glory of Christ. According to theologian Albert Barnes, and this is a little longer quotation, so stay with me. Quote, the figure here is evidently taken from military conquests. The idea is that all the strongholds of paganism and pride and sin would be demolished. And that when this was done, like throwing down the walls of a city or making a breach, all the plans and purposes of the soul, the reason, the imagination, and all the powers of the mind would be subdued or led in triumph by the gospel, like the inhabitants of a captured city. Christ was the great captain in this warfare. In his name the battle was waged, and by his power the victory was won. The captives were made for him and under his authority, and all were to be subject to his control. Every power of thought in the pagan world, all the systems of philosophy and all forms of opinion among people, all the purposes of the soul, all the powers of reason, memory, judgment, fancy, and and an individual were all to come under the laws of Christ. All doctrines were to be in accordance with his will. Philosophy should no longer control them but they should be subject to the will of Christ. All the plans of life should be controlled by the will of Christ and formed and executed under his control as captives are led by the conqueror. All the emotions and feelings of the heart should be controlled by him and led by him as a captive is led by a victor. The sense is that it was the aim and purpose of Paul to accomplish this and that it would certainly be done. The strongholds of philosophy and Paganism and sin should be demolished. And all the opinions, plans, and purposes of the world should become subject to the all-conquering Redeemer. End quote. Having a prepared mind, a, a mind prepared to answer God's call to, to a holy life, involves renewal of the mind. It, revolves, it, it involves rather taking every thought captive. And lastly, it involves dwelling on things above. Again, another familiar passage 
Philippians 4, 5 to 9, Paul writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, praiseworthy. Friends, what Paul is not necessarily calling Christians to do here is to try to find things in the world or even in other people that fall into these categories. It's not what he's doing. While, while we certainly can find contemporary example of things and or people, we can categorize in some or maybe even all of these ways. And while in those instances we can have cause to worship God as a result, Paul is calling Christians to set their sights higher than things and people much higher. Paul is calling the Philippians to look to Christ. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is right, pure, and lovely. Jesus is of good repute and excellent. Jesus is praiseworthy. He's perfectly so. And perfectly so in so many other ways and categories. Do you want to prepare your mind to answer the call to holiness? Then look unto Christ and keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Dwell on Christ. I think many Christians, and and I know there have been times when this has certainly been true about me in my own life. I I know many Christians think they fall into discouragement, even depression, as as they recognize they are not as holy as they ought to be or maybe even want to be. Because they spend too much time looking in the mirror and not enough time looking to Christ, looking to his cross, looking to his finished work, to his resurrection. We look in the mirror and sometimes think way too highly of ourselves when we look in the mirror. We look in the mirror and fail to see Christ because our view of him is obscured by the person we're looking at in the mirror. We can also look in the mirror and dwell on how sinful and incapable and how unworthy we are. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when we stay there, when we choose to wallow in the mire of self-pity, we, in effect, relegate the shed blood of Christ and his sacrifice as a common and insufficient thing. We trample underfoot the blood of Christ, shed for the remission of sins. We subconsciously say to ourselves, what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection is insufficient to cover, to wash away this or that sin. I not only deserve to be punished, but I don't think God is punishing me enough, so I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to do it myself. We're still, sometimes we look in the mirror we do so because Jesus simply isn't enough. We, we're discontent with our lot. We're discontent with our Lord. We want more, and we look into the mirror to grumble and complain. Repent of these things, brothers and sisters. If this is you at all, repent of these things. I've had to repent of these things. Repent and dwell on things above. Renew your mind. Take every thought captive and dwell on Christ 
look to Christ, you will be all the more prepared to answer God's call to a holy life. In order to answer God's call to live holy lives, his, his people must have prepared minds. They also must have obedient hearts and holy conduct, godliness. These two go hand in hand with one another. Peter writes in verses 14 to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Of course, the Greek word translated as obedient in verse 14 means what it says. To, to be obedient is to be submissive and compliant. And this obedience is typically, almost always, in response to someone else speaking to you. Obedience is following orders. Yeah, we hate that, don't we? We don't even like the sound of that. That almost tastes nasty, doesn't it? It's true, obedience is following orders. Obedience is doing what we are told. We expected a great deal out of our kids. Sometimes I think we expect it not enough out of ourselves. Most professing Christians are closet antinomians. Antinomianism, most simply put, means against the law. They, they live against the law. They, they, they do not like the law. They do not think they're submissive to the law. There, there are those who name the name of Christ that believe God's moral law no longer applies to them. They shout, I'm not under law anymore. I'm under grace. Well, there's truth in that, isn't there? For some, there's enough truth there to be dangerous. Here's what they're actually saying, though. Here's what the antinomian actually means when he says, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. I can watch this filthy movie, Jesus died for me. I can play this disgusting video game, Jesus died for me. I can read this perverted magazine for the articles only, of course, Jesus died for me. I can be lazy, slothful. Jesus died for me. I don't have to work hard. Jesus died for me. I don't have to be consistent in my Bible reading. Jesus died for me. I don't have to regularly pray. Jesus died for me. I don't have to be a member of the local church. It's me and Jesus. Jesus died for me. Jesus didn't die so that we can stay in our sin. Jesus didn't die so we can play with our sin. Jesus didn't die so we can obey our flesh and its lust. He died to set us free so that we can be holy as he is holy, so that we can obey him as slaves who love and are willing to die for their master. In one Greek word study where this definitional sense of responding to someone speaking is found, two verses are cited in support, one we've already considered. And one is in Peter's opening statement in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. You see how beautiful the Trinity is laid out there. <laughs> According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.5, which we've already looked at, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how do we obey? 
How do we know when it comes to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ what it means and what it looks like to obey him? Well, yes, God has written his law on our hearts, on every human heart. He has given each and every human being a conscience, the innate ability to discern what is right and wrong according to God's perfect moral standard. But in a metaphysical sense, in the uh, the study of the way things are and the way things ought to be, where do we go to learn what God says regarding how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, it's the Bible, beloved. It's the Bible. With that in mind, listen now to the voice of God. Psalm 119.57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Psalm 119.101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. John 8.51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John 14, 15, gets a little tougher now. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A little later in the chapter, in verses 23, 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Beloved, obedience without love is legalism. Obedience without love, love for Christ, is legalism. Love without obedience to Christ is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Obedience without love for Christ is legalism. Love for Christ without obedience to him is hypocrisy. How will you know if you have an obedient heart? How will you know if you are not obeying God as you should? Well, it won't be in the self-righteous effort of keeping the law. Without the word of God, which includes Christ's expansion of the basic principles of the Ten Commandments, i.e. don't look with lust and don't hate, you wouldn't know what should motivate you to keep the law. You wouldn't know that everything that is not done in faith, including keeping the law, is sin. Paul writes in Romans 14, 23, and don't get bogged down on the conversation about food, when you should eat what and what you shouldn't eat when. Paul writes, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Listen, for whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's sin. In addition to hearing the voice of God and God only speaks to his people, as we know uh, today, in and through his word. And in addition to knowing what and how you must obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you also need to live a life of applied obedience. It's not simply enough to know what you should do. You actually have to apply those commands to obey. Now hear me, I'm not at all telling you to live a certain way in order to earn or deserve or to keep God's love. I'm I'm telling you that God commands you to live a certain way as an outpouring of thankfulness and love for God because he first loved you, loved you enough to save you by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There should be a, lo- there should be a response. There should be a lifelong response to that love received. Any thought or overture toward answering God's call to holiness without actively engaging in applied obedience is just wishful thinking and not even honest 
wishful thinking. Why? Because we do what we care about in the end. We do what we care about. We can pontificate all we want, that we want to be more like Christ, that we want to live godly, holy lives that are pleasing to the Lord. We can shout from the housetops how much we love Jesus, but in the end, the extent to which we want to live holy lives will be an outworking of that adage that we do what we care about. And so what so often divides our attention, our loyalty, and our love? Well, Peter continues in verse 14 with these words, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Our former lusts, our ignorance, our old and bad habits, our sin can from time to time rear their ugly heads. And while Christ died to free us from the penalty of sin as well as from the power of sin, we remain for now in these sin-stained earthen vessels. That's the way it is. The obedient heart is one that having been changed by God from stone to flesh, having been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, seeks daily and habitually to flee the sin he or she once loved. Not only should the Christian want to put off sin, but he or she should also want to put on Christ. To put off sin without putting on Christ is legalism. To claim to put on Christ without putting off sin is hypocrisy. To put off sin without putting on Christ is legalism. And to claim to put on Christ without putting off sin is hypocrisy. In Colossians 3, 1-4 we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. By putting off sin and putting on Christ, we will be able to answer the call to holiness. Peter writes in verses 15 to 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy we will exude, we will at least have the desire, the real heartfelt desire to exude holy conduct. We will seek to live godly lives, living in such a way that the people around us can expect we will do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. We will live that way when no one is looking. We'll live that way when no one can see us. And we will deny ourselves. We will deny ourselves. I had a wonderful opportunity this week to spend some time with a, with a young man who's struggling over issues of salvation. Am I saved? Am I not saved? And at one point during the conversation, I asked him, Tell me, what have you denied in your life for Christ? Give me one thing. Tell me one thing for the sake and glory and worship and love for Christ that you have denied of yourself. And without missing a beat, very honest, no stuttering, no stammering, I can't think of anything. And I said, repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Christ. 
Jesus said, we will deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him daily if we belong to Christ. So turn to Christ. If that young man saved, the message is the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Christ. If, if he's not saved, the message is the same. Repent. Turn to Christ. You know, I, I got here pretty early this morning. Spent a wonderful time with the Lord in prayer and walking around the church and singing. And, and um, I, I looked, out, looked out the window there in the foyer area to this huge, gorgeous, golden tree here. What The leaves are finally turning. They weren't that beautiful last year, I don't, I don't think. This year, they're just vibrant. They're gorgeous. Reds and golds and purples and just absolutely beautiful. But as, I, as I'm worshiping and as I'm praying and as I'm thinking about this morning and I'm, I'm looking out at that tree, I, it hit me that those leaves are the most beautiful when they're about to die. Those leaves are at their prettiest, at their most gorgeous, at their most vibrant, at their brightest when they are about to die. So are we, beloved, when we die to ourselves, when we deny ourselves, when we sacrifice of ourselves for the glory of Christ. When we die to ourselves is when we are the brightest. When the light of Christ is shining the brightest. When we're dying to ourselves. When we're denying ourselves for the sake of Christ. That is when we are closest to the beauty of Christ. Think about it. Consider that. As you go, oh wow, as you're looking at the trees. Over the next couple of weeks. We are the brightest. We are the most beautiful. We are the most vibrant when we are denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following Christ daily. Yes, to answer God's call to live holy lives, his people must have prepared minds and obedient hearts, holy conduct, godliness. Lastly, according to this morning's passage, to answer God's call to live holy lives, we must be in regular communication with him, we must live a prayerful life. Paul writes, and or Peter rather writes in verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter continues the thematic element of conduct as he addresses our next point regarding answering the call to holiness, the prayerful life. Peter writes, if you address as father. The Greek word translated here as address appears some 30 times in the New Testament. And here are some examples. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the dramatic and miraculous scene of a wary Ananias healing a blind Saul of Tarsus and, and then prophesying over him and recounting his conversion, we read Paul's words in Acts 22.16, and now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In Romans ten twelve, we read, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
Now, in addition to the sense of addressing God in prayer, there is also the sense of addressing him by name and or by title. In Acts 1, as the apostles gathered to determine who would replace Judas as an apostle, we read in verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And when the Roman centurion was instructed by the angel to send men to Joppa to summon Peter, we read in Acts 10.5, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. So most commentators I, I read see Peter's use of the word address in the sense of calling out to the Father in prayer, but there are also those who read it as addressing God as the paternal ruler of the universe. I think the context is clear. Peter has in mind his readers engaging in prayer. The word if in verse 17 doesn't express a sense of doubt or bringing into question whether Peter's readers pray. Rather, Peter uses the word in the sense of since as a foregone conclusion that those who would address God as Father are those who would call upon their Father in heaven in prayer. Christians pray. There can be no real or, or meaningful Christ-likeness apart from prayer. Jesus was the God-man of prayer. Yes, Jesus prayed before meals. Unlike us, at least on two occasions, that resulted in the miraculous feeding of tens of thousands of people. Jesus was the epitome of obedience to the biblical mandate to pray without ceasing. He prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. He prayed aloud. He prayed in silence. He prayed in public. He prayed in private. He spent entire nights forfeiting all sleep to commune with his Father in prayer. Jesus not only prayed for his apostles, but he prayed for all those who would believe the gospel because of the apostles' teaching. He prayed for us. Uh, John 17, 20 to 24, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, brothers and sisters. That's us, Christians. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, Christians, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Another one of my favorite passages regarding assurance. Jesus, who could only pray perfectly, prayed to God the Father, who could only hear and answer perfectly. And Jesus prayed that everyone who would be born again will one day be with him. And Jesus is going to receive exactly what he prayed for then and what he continually prays before the Father. We're going to heaven! We're going to heaven! Because Jesus prayed for us. Because he died on the cross for our sins. Because he forever defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. And he continually intercedes for us now. Jesus was perfectly devoted to prayer. 
Of course, it was the Apostle Paul who exhorted the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And, and if you look at the men and women most used of God in the early church and throughout church history, they were all people of prayer, not occasional prayer, but rather prayer as a way of life. And when you think of those godly men and women of the last hundred years who have done great things for the kingdom in pulpits and in unnamed villages, standing tall and in wheelchairs, and an intimate look at their lives would likely reveal that they were people of habitual, worshipful, and vibrant prayer. They were praying people. People tells his readers, people of prayer, to conduct themselves in fear during their time on earth. Fear, reverence, awe, obedience, love, fear of God. Is anyone really in awe of God? Uh, does anyone who does not address God as Father and go to Him in prayer like a child clinging to His or her Father reverentially fear Him? No. If you are not a praying person, then why would you believe that you even love God? Why would you believe that you fear God in any reverential uh, sense of the word? What claim can you have on holy living if you are not regularly, lovingly, fervently, biblically praying to your Father in heaven? How can you claim to want to be like Jesus, let alone claim to be like Jesus if you are not praying a praying person like the God-man was a praying person? In answering God's call to holiness, Christian, get on your knees. Get on your knees. Do you really think it's lost on God how little time we spend on our knees in prayer, if that is the case in our lives? Opting instead to feed our flesh, sometimes feeding it with things that even your brethren would see as good things, things that in and of themselves may not be sinful, but still things that we choose to do to feed our flesh instead of getting to our knees. Beloved, if you are going to answer God's call to holiness and he commands us to do so then get on your knees be like James who according to church tradition was called camel knees because his knees were so badly calloused as a result of all the time he spent on them praying now, as we've seen during our time in our passage this morning and we really only scratched the surface of all that God has for us in this passage many sermons can be preached in this passage. To answer God's call to live holy lives, we as Christians must have prepared minds, obedient hearts, godliness, holy conduct, and a prayerful life. And of course, undergirding all of that is the foundation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Peter ends his call to holiness this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What we've considered this morning, which is answering God's call to holiness, is only possible for those redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, who came to die for his people and only for his people. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the eternal second person of the one and only triune God, 
has been and is with the Father, through whom all things were created, the one who died the death he did not deserve to take upon himself the punishment each and every one of us rightly deserves for our sin against him and then forever defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead and bestowed on him glory. Why? So that our faith and hope are in God. That's what the passage says. There is no other way to have authentic faith in God but through faith in Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the way and the truth and the life. And there may be some here or someone here this morning who thinks the last hour just places too much of an undue burden on people. It's just too legalistic, it's pharisaical, it's harsh, it's overbearing, it's insensitive, it's mean, it's graceless. Well, if you're thinking that way, you couldn't be more wrong. And you may have exposed in that thinking that you're the one that doesn't love God. You're the one that doesn't want to be like Jesus. If you, if you find the pursuit of holiness too burdensome, too taxing, then it may be because you do not know Christ. Repent and believe the gospel while God has given you time. If we truly belong to Christ, and this is the closing thought, the moment you've all been waiting for, if we truly belong to Christ, then our hearts desire as imperfect as we all are is to live holy lives pleasing to our Father in heaven. And God has provided every one of his precious blood-bought people with both the ways and the means to do that. The way to a holy life, regeneration, justification, and initial sanctification, salvation by the grace of God alone through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, indwelt by the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment and leads us to all truth. God has provided the way to live a holy life. And God has also provided the means for a holy life, progressive sanctification in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, prepared minds, obedient hearts, holy conduct, and a prayerful life. If you are in Christ, you have absolutely everything you need to be holy as he is holy, to pursue and live a holy life. He has provided the ways and the means for us to do that. So may we all, therefore, answer God's call to holiness for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for our time in your word this morning, and we need your help, Father. In and of ourselves, we cannot be holy as you are holy. In and of our flesh alone, we cannot be holy as you are holy. We need you. And you have given us both the ways and the means to do that. Help us, Father. Prepare our minds, Lord. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to live sanctified, obedient lives, Father. Help us to be prayerful men and women desire to be holy as you are holy and may all of this happen in our lives and corporately in our church because we want to glorify you because we love you our father because we love our lord and savior jesus christ and we want to be like you for your glory in jesus name amen